and then we saw two black cats big black cats about the same size that picked out a sheep and a lamb and cornered it in the corner of the field and were about to attack seeing is believing and i have no proof of what i saw that day other than what i can describe it was huge it was like the weightlifter of cats welcome to big cat conversations we speak directly to people who've encountered one of britain's big cats we also discuss the bigger picture i'm rick minter and thanks for joining me Welcome to episode 52 of Big Cat Conversations. Once again, we are heading overseas beyond the British Isles in this edition. Our guest is the British wildlife photographer, Will Burrard-Lucas. We're going to hear about Will's work in general, but especially about his Black Leopard book and his recent project filming a black panther, a black leopard, in Kenya. So, Will, great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here speaking with you today. Thanks, Will. And to get going, it would be nice to hear how you started your career in wildlife photography and what were the sort of inspirational moments that really felt that you should make the plunge into doing this as a full-time job? I was lucky enough when I was about three or four years old, my family moved to Tanzania in East Africa for a few years. And so really my earliest memories are from that time of going on safari, seeing wildlife and ever since I grew up with that being a big part of my identity. But uh, photography for me came along later. It was actually when I was at university, it was sort of the dawn of these affordable, decent quality digital cameras. The moment I got my first digital camera, I sort of fell in love with photography, really. I was using it mostly just to document my travels and things. I continued to, I guess, try and push my boundaries, keep improving and started earning some income. And eventually after seven or so years, I'd sort of built up the photography to a point where I thought it was worth giving it a go, taking a plunge and uh, becoming a wildlife photographer. So that was 2010 that I made the leap and uh, I'm glad to say I haven't looked back. Can you remember some of the inspirational wildlife watching and wildlife filming moments that made you think this is what I want to do? Yeah, I mean, the very first time I actually photographed a wild animal, it was on a family holiday in Canada and my mother was into photography and we were on the west coast uh, looking for bears and we're in this sort of zodiac this uh, small uh, boat and there was this bear appeared on the coast uh, beside us and it was on my side of the boat so it was natural for me to pick up my mom's camera and photograph it and that sort of moment of freezing that moment uh, recording it forever so it was always a moment I could look back on and remember and indeed share with other people through the photograph. And really in that moment, I fell in love with photographing wildlife. And then, you know, along the way thereafter, every time I guess get to experience and photograph a new wild location or species, you know, each, each new species I do get to photograph, you know, leaves a special memory. And so, yeah, when I look back at the photo, I, it brings back all those memories, you know, the challenge of finding these animals or or just the pleasure of sitting and watching them, waiting for the light to get good to photograph them. If you had to summarise to somebody what the thrust of your work was and your particular interests and specialities, how would you explain that? The Black Leopard certainly came only recently, and I'd been, I guess, building up my career for quite a few years before that. So really, I guess to get noticed or to make it as a wildlife photographer, you've really got to show people stuff they've not seen before. And whether that means traveling to very unusual places, photographing unusual creatures, or photographing more common creatures in new ways. And for me, as I was sort of finding myself as a photographer, experimenting with, I guess, finding a style, I found that by getting much closer to my subjects, using a wide angle lens, it gave me this intimate perspective, which really appealed to me and created these photos that you almost felt you could reach into and touch the subjects. And so I started by crawling up to animals, you know, very uh, cautiously, so it's not to spook them away, getting close that way and capturing these sort of intimate perspectives of animals such as penguins and meerkats that weren't particularly threatening. But I soon found myself wanting to do this with bigger, potentially more dangerous animals. And so Back in 2009, I decided to just uh, take a chance, see what I could get if I built a remote control buggy and mounted my camera on that and used that to get close to animals in Africa. 
And so I called this creation Beetlecam. And those very early photos uh, sort of proved the concept. Uh, they were well received in terms of press and social media and things. And so I knew that I was onto something with this perspective. And I then went on to improve Beetlecam, capture more images that really, uh, I guess, moved the whole thing forward. And now still to this day, I'm finding new ways to use it to capture wildlife, mostly in Africa, but um, yeah, all over the place, really. That beetle cam, it was really only something I could use with quite bold animals. Any sort of prey animal or something more skittish will run a mile the moment it detects something trundling along in the grass. And so after I'd been using beetle cam for a few years, I found myself really wanting to go further and try and get these intimate photos of more varied creatures, particularly some of the shire animals. That was when I started using camera traps. And so that's a stationary camera. I'm sure your listeners know a stationary camera with a sensor that triggers automatically when an animal goes in front of it. Using camera traps, I was able to get much more advanced with lighting subjects at night. To set up really a nighttime photo, it's really made or broken by the lighting and setting up attractive lighting is actually something that takes quite a long time. One camera trap could take me a couple of hours to set up to dial in that lighting. So it's not really something you can do if you find an animal. You're never going to have time to set up lighting before it moves off. And so camera traps are really the only way to get these sort of dramatically lit photographs of wildlife at night because you need that time to set up lighting in advance and then just wait for the animals to come through. And so using camera traps, I was able to then really I guess, advance my work with shire species and wildlife at night in particular. You used innovation in technology to drive your, a mm. lot of your work, but it's, it's understanding the subject, isn't it? Because, as you say, some wildlife is just not going to go near beetle cam. And just so people know about it, it looks like something out of Robot Wars, doesn't it? It's a little sort of go-karty thing which trundles along. Yeah, I tried to keep it quite compact so that I could easily travel with it. But the result is it does look quite cute. But yeah, I mean, all, all these devices I've created over the years, it all comes from having this image in mind I want to capture and then figuring out what I might, you know, if I can't buy something that will allow me to get this photo the way I need to get it, then building whatever it is that will enable me to do that. And so that's yeah how Beetlecam came to be. And then yeah, with the camera traps as well, it, that was something that I ended up having to develop myself. At the time I was doing this, there just wasn't anything out there that was going to work the way I wanted it to work. Mm -hmm. That's That, I guess, has become a hallmark of my work, is that often I will be creating the equipment that I need to get the photos I'm after. We're going to move on to sort of stealthy animals, the challenge of filming stealthy animals like leopards and cats especially. But before we do that, can we just have some thoughts on the problems which technology and camera kit brings when you put it into an ecosystem, into a habitat, because it smells, it makes noises, it reflects light. It's a different object mm -hmm. to what the animals are used to. How do you cope with that kind of problem? It's bad enough with one little half a brick size camera trap, but with the, some of the kit you use, it must be extra intrusive, potentially. How do you make it be less intrusive? Yeah, so... That's all a big learning curve, a lot of experience, trial and error to figure out what animals' boundaries are. Often I'll be working with researchers or guides who really know these animals much better than I could ever get to know them, you know, in a fleeting visit. And so uh, bringing all this together, the way I generally approach it is start by, you know, you just want to get something in terms of some sort of photo. And so often I'll start with my camera much further back. Uh, using a more telephoto lens to capture those shots. And then as I see how the animals respond to that, I can then start moving the equipment closer to get more intimate perspectives that way. And again, with the lighting as well, that's also a case of you know, figuring out what the animals will uh, not be uh, put off by. And so um, if it is a very sensitive subject, I'll often start using infrared lighting, which is obviously invisible, gives me black and white photos. So I did a project on barn owls, for example, and I did the whole thing in infrared because I didn't want to be sort of strobing them with bright flashes. With my most recent black leopard project, again, I also started using infrared and then moved to color and saw that he wasn't he wasn't put off by it at all. In fact, he completely ignored it. And so then uh, sort of progressed to using color flashes. But yeah, being very sensitive is certainly the aim. And so, you know, I'll always try and, for example, with the flashes, keep them as dim as possible, put the sensitivity on the camera as high as I can go. And, you know, where I can be 
non-intrusive as possible. You know, I'll only take one photo every 30 seconds or a minute uh, rather than strobing the animal, uh, being considerate in those ways. And often my flashes are so dim because I'm actually balancing that flashlight with starlight in, in most of my photos. And so actually the flash is as dim as the flash can get because otherwise it overwhelms the photo and you can't expose the stars. Um, yeah, so lots of little tricks. You know, obviously some sensitive animals, you might have to work a bit harder to camouflage equipment. Uh, so have it further away from the trail, break up its outline with, with netting and bushes and things. The other thing that can make a difference is I often like to get these sort of head-on shots. Um, often with trail cameras and things, people will be putting them side on to capture spot patterns and things. But, you know, for me, it's about the presence of the animal in the photo. And often I like yeah, having the animal coming head on. But the problem then is you put, end up putting the camera on the trail or near to the trail in front of it, which can often put it off. And so that's another instance where I'd start with it maybe further back to the side. And then as I progress and animals get used to my equipment, start moving it towards the trail and getting those more head-on shots. And time helps as well. You know, you can't really expect to set up a camera trap and within a few nights or days get the sort of photos you want you know you need to give the animals time to get accustomed to the equipment and to start ignoring it and for example the black leopard you know i often in the early days got photos of him looking at the camera because he was obviously figuring out what it was but after a couple of weeks or so he would ignore it completely and i almost never got eye contact after that so yeah they quickly learn to uh, to get used to these things and uh, and ignore them when they realize that they're not a problem what about smells and odour in two ways? First of all, do you do anything to mask the artificial smell and the human smell that would be around camera kit, first of all? I kind of feel like, in a way, that's a bit futile in that I don't think... I think these animals are so highly tuned, they'll always know that that thing is there and to be able to pick up the scent. So really, I rely more on leaving it out for long enough that the animals get used to it rather than trying to disguise it too much when it takes a couple of hours to set up one of these camera traps it's impossible to not leave your smell or whatever so leaving cameras out for longer not visiting them too often as well if i can help it so yeah, i might leave them a week without visiting 10 days sometimes a bit longer um so yeah minimizing disturbance once it is set up probably does help again it also depends on the species and yeah, how sensitive they are how habituated that animal is to the presence of human objects uh, but very often, you know, there's there's anti-poaching ranges, uh, maybe tourism. You know, there's often quite a lot of human involvement in an area anyway. And so I find that, yeah, once the animals get used to the equipment, I don't think it matters too much. You let it weather in, basically. Yeah, often. There's no point setting up a trap for a short time. Nowadays, I'd like to leave them up for months, really, to get the photos I want. So, yeah, really, I think... It just becomes part of the landscape for these animals. And what about the other way in terms of using odour as a lure? Do you do anything ever to, like, I don't know, stringing up feathers to create movement that a leopard might be attracted to or putting down some Calvin Klein obsession perfume cologne? Any of those tricks or do you feel it's cheating and you just go for pinch points and obvious key focal points in the landscape? I have tried the cologne thing and... I didn't seem to make any difference whatsoever. But really, I've discovered that, you know, there's nothing better than an animal trail leading to water in the dry season. And there's pretty much nothing that uh, that outperforms that. So really, it comes down to understanding these animals, which areas they're using frequently. And often they'll have, uh, you know, one or two water sources they're visiting regularly. They might have areas where they like to go to survey their surroundings before starting to hunt and things. And so through trial and error and speaking to people who live in these areas and really understand these animals, finding those parts of the landscape that the animals are already using intensively tends to yield, you know, very productive uh, spots. We're sort of edging our way into leopards and the Black Leopard Project as we go. And are there any other tips for extra stealthy animals? So it all starts with that local knowledge, really, and you know, where have people seen it, recorded it, seen the spore, those things. So really without that, my chances are pretty much zero to start with. But if, you know, I've got speaking to the rangers, researchers, guides and things in an area, that can give me a big head start in terms of figuring out where to put cameras. And then after that, it's a case of 
as many cameras as you can get set up and leaving them out for as long as possible. And eventually, if you do that for long enough with enough cameras, a small percentage chance of capturing the shot eventually turns into a very high chance if you give it enough perseverance. Can we now go on to leopards and black leopards? And But can we start with your experience in India? Because reading your book, it's the experience of seeing that black leopard in India that was used in the Nat Geo documentary. And mm-hmm. when actually there was a sort of style of presenting that uh, documentary where the leopard became the narrator, telling his own story, which I thought was a very nice, creative way to present it. But you actually were on a safari. In fact, it was after a, during a conference, wasn't it? Or some kind of event over in yeah. India. And you got taken out and you, you sort of um, discovered the allure of black panthers, basically, it seems. Yeah, so it was all it all happened around the same time. Basically, this black leopard in Kabini Forest in in India it sort of become this superstar almost overnight when he showed up in this I guess tourist area of this national park. All of a sudden, you know, there were photos of this leopard coming out. At that point, I'd had a long held dream to photograph a black panther, and so these photos of this leopard really um, captured my attention. That's for sure. And then, by chance, I was invited to speak at this nature photography festival in Bangalore which is only a few hours drive from where this leopard lives and so I thought it would be nice just to spend a few days while I was out there you know looking around the forest Uh, you know I knew there was a a small chance I might see the leopard but actually I didn't realistically expect to see him because he is still one very elusive cat in this big forest and really your chances if you go for a few days particularly at this time of year it was the wet season when the when the foliage is very thick you know, I had very little chance of seeing him. But, you know, I I love being out in these wild places, wanted to do it anyway, thought maybe I might get lucky and see a tiger even. Uh, so I was out there for three days and, um, and yeah, halfway through, had this incredible encounter and saw this black leopard. The, the way it all unfolded was we were just you know, driving, as you do, quite slowly, keeping your eyes peeled, but also listening out for alarm calls because really the way you find a predator, whether it's in Africa or India, it's listening out for alarm calls of animals such as deer or monkeys because they're the ones that are much more likely to spot spot a predator and then alert you know all the other animals in the vicinity. And so uh, we heard this deer making its alarm call. Everyone's sort of straining their eyes trying to see what had spooked this deer. And then there in the middle of the road was this uh, black leopard walking straight towards us. And it probably only lasted, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds before he then uh, went off and disappeared into the jungle. But yeah, it was certainly a a pretty uh, spectacular encounter and really ignited my imagination and and left me dreaming more than ever of actually photographing one of these animals properly and really doing it justice. What was he doing, do you think? Was he just going from A to B and, and they'd blown his cover or was he actually stalking and sort of in hunting mode? He was pretty nonchalant, so I think he was just going from A to B. Um, by this point, he was quite a big male, so probably just uh, cruising around his territory, uh, patrolling, really. And I gather that um, making that documentary that he featured in, obviously he was elusive and difficult to film, but they did have a team of people regularly on the lookout for him, and that's how you do it. There's no other way. He's got to be tracked, and they've got to be on the lookout yeah. for him regularly to get a chance to just descend on him and try filming him. And it was as simple as that, wasn't it? And their chances were much higher when they were working in the dry season because really, as soon as the vegetation starts to dry up and get flattened down, you can see much, much further into the forest and your chance of actually spotting him is way higher. So I think, um, yeah, trying to get all the footage they did get in the wet season would have been very difficult, but your chances do increase by going at the right time of year. Okay, well, can we move to Kenya now and, and your experience in um, pursuing a black leopard there and getting a tip off and thinking about a project and implementing it? And again, you did that with plenty of help of local people, didn't you? Yes. Um, so through the years that I'd been visiting various places in Africa, every now and then I did hear a tantalising, I guess, a uh, friend of a friend who had seen one of these black leopards, but never I never met anyone who'd actually seen one themselves. And so places like... Um, Ethiopia, where I did a project on Ethiopian wolves, and then the Abadares, this thickly forested area of Kenya. You know, I did hear every now and then somebody does get to see one, but without knowing somebody who was seeing one regularly, trying to 
track down a black leopard and know where its territory might be and where to set up camera traps. You know, it's just a needle in a haystack type thing and just wouldn't be possible. But then I heard about, uh, through a friend in the tourism industry, this black leopard that was being seen, you know, a few times a year in this area near this camp called Lakipi Wilderness Camp uh, near Mount Kenya. It seemed like he was fairly settled in this territory. And so the instant I heard that, I knew I just had to try and photograph him, even if my chances of success were close to zero, because really photographs of a wild black leopard in Africa are incredibly rare. And in terms of actually doing it properly, getting high quality photographs, you know, there's almost nothing. And so I knew I had to try, even if my chances were slim to none. So um, I tracked down the source of this sighting, um, got in touch with the owners of the camp. And a few months later, at the height of the dry season, which is obviously when the most likely time is to be able to camera trap an animal like this, I went out to Lycipia and set up my cameras. A few nights in, I, uh, I'd got my first photograph of the leopard and I was out there for two weeks that first trip and got a handful of photos came back at the end of the trip, published them. They went sort of wildly viral because they were so striking. You know, this black animal in the black of night. Yeah, just such a stunning creature, really. Uh, but for that time, while I knew where this black leopard was, you know, I couldn't ever imagine stopping photographing him. So I had left my cameras running in Kenya and it turned out to be over a year that my cameras were running there. I would go out every few uh, weeks or months to move them around, uh, to adjust the settings, to try and increase the variety of shots I was getting. But I did that for yeah, just over a year and then COVID struck, halted the project. But by that time, I had everything I needed for the book. And so during the last year, uh, during COVID, I could just concentrate on writing the book and going through the images, doing all that stuff at the, at the computer. I can certainly recommend the book, and it's a lot more than just the Black Leopard Project, although that's the highlight. There's a you know, the complete scope of your work is in there, and it is a very good read. You can read it through sequentially, or you can dip into and very well illustrated throughout with your photographs. So, um, yeah, marvellous book. Thank you very much. We'll touch on the rest of the book perhaps a bit later, but in terms of actually filming what you call Blackie, had you had no information from local people, do you think you would have set up your kit in the right place without their help and guidance? So obviously it was them who first saw the leopard and even alerted to me to the fact that there was a black leopard in this area. So I never would have been there without them having had these sightings. It is a vast area. This part of Kenya is stuffed full of leopards and so there really are leopards everywhere. You know, it's quite possible driving along, you do spot leopard spore, um, signs of leopard. Uh, but, you know, you have no idea whether that's from a black leopard or a spotty leopard. So really it was from sightings, um, from the rangers, landowners, guides, uh, researchers, that I was able to establish the rough area the leopard was using, where he was being seen most regularly. And it seemed that in that area there was him, he was still a young male, and then a dominant male who was spotty and the black leopard's mother who was also still in that area. And so we, on the first day we got there, we found leopard tracks. Didn't know which leopard it was from, but you know, you kind of got a one in three chance that it might be the black leopard. So it was on the trail that that, that those tracks were on that um, I set up a couple of cameras and those were where I got the first photos. But thereafter, it was actually one of the rangers suggested this open rocky area where he said that he'd often seen the leopard. Over the course of the year thereafter, it was that spot that really outperformed all the others in terms of how many uh, pictures I got of this leopard. Because it did seem he, he uh, often went to this rock to sort of look out over the landscape and he would often actually go there and sort of look down towards the landowner's house where she's got a swimming pool and he would often go and drink there in the dry season. And I think he used this rocky area to sort of scope out, check it, it was all quiet before he ventured down. And so I think that's one of the reasons it was so productive. OK, so it was like a vantage point. It wasn't a sort of a sunning spot. No, no. And he, he was very nocturnal and I'd never got him there in the day or in light. It was always in the dark you know, hours that he would come past. And what marks your photos out, your nighttime photos, is you, you use your own custom-built camera trap devices. 
with side illumination. So there's very vivid, striking lighting, and which shows up the black yeah. um, rosettes, which uh, you call shadow spots, which is a great term, and um, we don't use that much on the podcast. So we're gonna, I'm going to bring that in as words of the week: the shadow spots. And okay, I was just thinking. I mean, he is a prime, prime condition animal, isn't he? Young, fit, male. Yeah. What do you do if you have lovely, vivid compositional photos and the actual individual in them of any kind of species isn't that striking? Is it a real letdown? Or do you think, well, actually, you know, I've still got a picture of a special animal. You know, it may look yeah. a, a veteran or, or decrepit or whatever, but it's still worth presenting. Yeah. Or does it, does it let the work down if you feel it's not a striking individual that's been photographed? I think something like a leopard particularly, they are all so beautiful, really. And, yeah, especially something as rare as a black leopard as well. I don't think any photo at all would have been a disappointment. Um, this guy, this leopard I was photographing was still quite young. For him to have got to an old age without anyone getting decent photos of him, I don't think would have necessarily happened anyway. So I think it was the fact that I got him while he was still young that meant um, I was uh, ahead of the curve in a way. At the time that I started the project, he was about two. And then that year, he obviously turned into sort of a three-year-old. He still wasn't the dominant male at that time. So he was still not as big as the big spotty leopard that I was photographing. Yeah. And he th- that one looks more like a jaguar, doesn't it? He's a strapping individual. Yeah, really, really well built. And so, yeah, he was still pushed around. If that spotty leopard was around, I wouldn't be getting the black leopard on my camera traps for a few nights. Blackie had a suppressed territory, basically, and so he was more uh, confined, which allowed you to snap him more than, than you might have done, perhaps. When he was yeah young, he was still in his mother's territory. I think she had quite a small territory. And so he was, yeah, the start of the project, I was getting him a lot. And gradually, as he grew, got older, he, he sort of spread his wings, so to speak, started ranging further as he looked for a, a territory of his own. And I was noticing the black rosettes the shadow spots but it's interesting Mm. how much your type of photography with the clever illumination would perhaps emphasize those because some black leopards some melanistic leopards when you look at them in zoos comparing with others do seem much more jet black and not without any texture or markings they do vary it seems in photographs and and zoos and this guy yeah yeah, it is very interesting, like the the way those spots do come through. But I saw him once in daylight, and I saw the black leopard in India in daylight. And both those encounters, you know, the animal looked pitch pitch black. All the only detail was the eyes. Even this this Kenyan one, and it was only under certain lighting that you would actually start to see those spots. And so I think I think what it was is with the lighting, I had to really overexpose him in a way so that you could actually see him against the black background and i think because of that the fact that he was lighter than the than the black background that sort of overexposing him did allow those shadow spots to really become more visible but yeah when i saw him with my own eyes i was quite you know stunned really just how dark he is and i certainly couldn't make out any spots in daylight so i think it is a lot to do with the lighting if you go to my um, instagram will be L. On the Reels tab, I've actually got a video of him that I shot while it was daylight. Ah. And so you can see you can see him walking across the landscape um, in broad daylight and you, you, you can't see a single spot. He's pitch black. So worth checking that out. OK. Did you use camera traps as well? And what was the difference? How much better were your main kit with a side illumination than the camera trap photos? I guess they're all camera traps. I call the, the small ones trail cameras and then my big camera traps are the camera traps. But anyway, yeah, I did mm. some scouting with some small trail cameras. But once I started to capture photos of the Black Leopard, you know, I very quickly started to zero in on, on the most productive areas. And so I stopped using the, the trail cameras, really. But mm. I came out with a whole bunch thinking I might need to use them to figure out what trails he was using. Mm. Did you actually snap him on the trail cameras? I didn't, but there were some leopard researchers working who did. And so, yeah, there is some trail camera footage of him. It's not half as good as, as your main ones, I presume. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you can't compare. The sensor on a full-frame DSLR is probably, I don't know, 50 times larger. It's just, yeah, it's not comparable in terms of image quality. One is a record of what comes past, and then the other type of high-quality camera trap is what produces these really striking, stunning images. 
Do you set your cameras to a mixture of modes or do you go for photo bursts? I mean, in the book, obviously, we've got photos and we don't know if they're they're one set piece one or it's part of a photo burst. And you've got ones of him looking up as if he's looking at night time, sort of looking up. Is he responding to a click of the camera or is he just looking because he is looking into the night um, environment? So I use a whole range of different techniques depending on the type of photo I want, whether I want to expose the stars, whether I want to create a sort of studio-like shot with a very black background. So there's different techniques I use. All the photos in the book are a single exposure. There's no sort of multiple exposures or anything, all one one frame. Sometimes I do have the camera shutter open a fraction of a second before the flashes go off, and that will sometimes make him look at the click, and then the flash goes off and exposes him. So there were a few where I did that, and a few that are sort of long exposures to get the stars coming through. So, yeah, different techniques. When the moon is out, I have to use different techniques to when there's no moon, for example. So, yeah, it's that's one of the reasons, you know, I kept going back and back again for a whole year, really, as I played around, really, with different ways of photographing him. Can we have the reactions that you've received? First of all, can we start with the very local reactions? Presumably, the camp owners and, and the locals who knew this was happening, they must have been elated that you've got uh, such good results and that they'd helped you and they could see their local black leopard so well. Hopefully, that was the case, was it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, this leopard is theirs in a way. And so then to be able to see him you know, looking so stunning and in such detail, uh, they certainly loved that. And then after that, when the photos got all the press exposure that they did, I think they did really appreciate that uh, you know people were taking notice of this special thing that was in their back garden, and they really you know felt a sense of pride at at having this this leopard there. You know, many of them had grown up in the area and had never seen a black leopard until this one turned up. So really, for them, it meant much more than you know almost anyone else because uh, you know it really was so special for them. So yeah, they they loved seeing the pictures. They were all so helpful in terms of helping me get the photos. And as I said, I never would have known where to even put my cameras without their sort of generous help. So I was thrilled that uh, they were able to to see the pictures and and see him and appreciate the uh, interest that the world took in the photos. Yeah, and do they call it a black leopard in Africa and Kenya? What do they call it? Do they just call it black panther or black leopard or? Yeah, they, they just call it a black leopard, I think. I mean, I don't know in their local language whether they have a colloquialism for it, but certainly when speaking to me, it would be the, yeah, the black leopard. But yeah, in, in Africa, they are so rare. I think because, you know, in places like Malaysia and Thailand, where they're much more prevalent, you know, it's thickly forested areas where a black cat can blend into the shadows and possibly even have an advantage when it comes to uh, sneaking up on prey and things. But in this bushy African savanna, the black leopard, and if you see that video I told you about on, on Instagram, he, he sticks out like a sore thumb. It's certainly no uh, survival advantage to be black. And so I think for that reason, that is why they're so unusual, really, and rare. So, as I say, you know, for all these people, it was really the first time they'd, they'd seen one with their own eyes. Yeah, well, we can link that Instagram show real piece on our website, hopefully. So I'll send you a link. Yeah, lovely. So under episode 52, we'll, we'll have that as well. That's that's lovely. Yeah. How did he compare seeing him for real in daylight with the, with the Indian one? Was he slightly smaller, presumably, because he was younger? But d- did he look a different sort of subspecies or was it simply not discernible from the view you got? Yeah, I I mean, by the time that sighting, the daylight sighting, he was about three. Yeah, maybe a bit more slender because he was younger, but very similar really that as i say you, you hardly see any detail it's just those burning eyes you see um yeah the sighting i had in africa lasted much much longer i was able to follow him around by that point i felt like i knew him because i had i'd seen him quite a few times at night already um and i'd been photographing him for almost a year at that point so um yeah I, i've obviously felt a, a sort of great deal of affection towards him a connection with him in a way so that was a very special uh, encounter the big uh, spotted one is is um, pretty impressive as well. Yeah. Do you go to in, into projects like this sometimes and have something else turn up, which is a wonderful surprise, and you think, wow, you know, I wasn't after that, but that is a wonderful bonus. Yeah, for sure. So um, in this 
striped hyenas. I'd not photographed one. They're much less usually seen than the spotted hyenas you'd usually get in Africa. So I managed to photograph them for the first time on this project. And then, yeah, the spotty leopard, he really posed nicely for a few photos. And I was kind of almost annoyed because whenever he was around, I wasn't getting the black leopard. But, you know, some of the photos of him are so beautiful that actually I could... I, I was I'll take them any time because yeah, a spotty leopard is is one of the most beautiful creatures there is. He was a good substitute. <laughs> yes, I, I didn't mind too much. Now it's not just about technology. I'm sure I know, I know you've said about working with local people and finding the right locations and thinking about the right seasons and getting your tracking right. But I guess is there more to it? It strikes me that you could be brilliant with your technology, but you could actually not be so successful simply because you haven't quite got it with understanding the habitat and the animals and wildlife that's in that. So there must be some other yeah. tricks to good wildlife photography that are beyond the technology. Yeah, technology is only half of it. Uh, the art- artistic side is, is only part of it. I think often I'll try and leverage local knowledge as much as possible. Working with a scientist just increases productivity so much so i always try and do that if i can whether it's this project or the project before which was all about an elephants always having that local partner really improves productivity and then yeah understanding habitats and animal behavior and so what i was saying for example timing my trip to be dry season i know that you know water sources are going to be magnets and it really can increase my productivity by picking where I'm sort of uh, staking out and and at what time of year, Um, understanding where a predator might be more likely to hunt, for example, you know, learning those telltale signs when looking for predators, you know, the alarm calls, learning to recognize what's an alarm call and what's, uh, you know, just a bird singing. And so recognizing alarm calls often will then lead you to a predator. Learning the tracks as well. If you see, um, you know, fresh tracks on a, sandy road you know knowing if that came from a hyena or a leopard um, knowing whether it's worth following judging how fresh they are that can all also help so there's a lot that i've picked up over the years from you know these experienced guides and people that have increased my ability to find these animals on my own but at the end of the day obviously a big element of luck right place at the right time and then really giving it time so you know eventually if you spend long enough and put in the hours looking and working hard, yeah, eventually that, that pays off usually. And what's the maximum number of the more sort of straightforward standard trail cameras that you would have out in, in a place uh, to do your scouting or to give you sort of supplementary material? What, what kind of numbers do you set up? So the maximum I've ever used is 10, but I prefer to, because I've often got to transport this stuff out there, I would prefer to bring out you know, my higher quality cameras, which is what I'm using to get the images that I can use. I don't use trail cameras all that much. I thought I would need to use them on the Black Leopard Project. In the end, didn't need to use them too much. And I mean, they're great for research. They're great if you're not getting the reliable eyewitness reports of where the animals are hanging out. But you know, if you've got rangers and guides who are seeing the animals, that's as good as a trail camera footage telling you where these animals are. And so um, I don't tend to use them all that much, really. But yeah, if I had to start from scratch in an area without any of that, then yeah, trail cameras would be vital in terms of yeah, figuring out where the animals are, are spending their time and uh, what's around. Because a lot of mainstream TV wildlife documentaries are doing that, aren't they? They're using local knowledge and advanced preparation with local people, but they're also using literally scores of camera traps to do the scouting first. Yeah, and the researchers who are actually maybe looking at an area, trying to figure out how many, say, leopards are using it, they can deploy, you know, two, three hundred camera traps to really get a full picture of what wildlife there is in an area. Sure. Can you tell us about one more highlight of the book? It um, really does range over a wide scope of your work. Is there something else you'd like to just um, highlight? The way the book was structured is it, this whole Black Leopard project was this coming together of so many strands of my life and of my career, from my love of wildlife and leopards in Africa to this equipment that I developed, the camera traps, which enabled me to, to capture these photos of the leopard. And then also the techniques I'd been developing, because I'd become obsessed really with photographing wildlife at night using the technology, lighting to capture these sort of stunning pictures with with stars in the sky, showing these animals, these nocturnal animals in their true element. 
so animals like hyenas and lions and things. And so there's a chapter in the lead up to the black leopard, uh, which is where I was really diving deep into photographing nocturnal wildlife in Lua Plain in Zambia, experimenting with lighting, with exposing stars, uh, really showing nocturnal creatures in a new light. And so I think there's a variety of pictures of hyenas and lions and, and some other creatures. Um, and then having done that work, being able to then apply it to such a rare creature as the black leopard, you know, I'd already done all that work to figure out how I would photograph a subject at night. And then, uh, you know, the perfect opportunity really came along to, with this black leopard to then apply it to such a rare and stunning creature. Just flicking through your book as we're talking, there's one of my favourite photos in there is a hippo with a bat. Yeah. And they're illuminated at night. It's a lovely composition. And yeah. it reminds me of, I had a, a camera trap, a trail camera, in a motorway underpass, a bit of private property that where the groundsman was seeing a black panther, a black leopard type animal, and I tracked it beyond there to a, a motorway underpass. And so I had this, and it triggered very, very slowly about a second delay so anything it would miss mm. a lot of the creatures that were going through this motorway underpass but a hedgehog would go there sometimes and twice the hedgehog going through captured by this trail camera had a bat flying around it i set it onto video which is probably a mistake because it triggers some um, more slowly on video mode but yeah and i just wondered whether that bat was working off the hedgehog to some kind of disturbance created by the hedgehog how many times do you get bats in association with a uh, a bigger animal and do you think they work off the animal or it's just coincidental yeah it's happened quite a few times i've got that hippo and bat photo that you mentioned there's a rhino in the book actually there's a black and white rhino at night and there's actually a bat in that as well mm. and my theory was that potentially there were maybe mosquitoes attracted to the hippo and the rhino maybe buzzing around it circling and maybe that's what's bringing in the um the bats because you know if i walk out in the middle of the night in africa i've often got a cloud of of uh you know midges and mosquitoes buzzing around me so i was wondering if that's why it seems to happen so often yeah um but yeah i've not seen any sort of research on it so it's just my hunch no, because I raised it at the mammal society conference um the year after i happened to be there talking about big cats actually uh, and uh, I, I mentioned mm -hmm. to a couple of them and they were simply unaware of it and it strikes me that this camera technology and trail cameras actually bring about new issues don't, because they spot things that we don't sort of think about and it does raise the question you know, are these coincidence or is it interesting I guess it's about sample size isn't it we need more samples to give us yeah. some evidence but um, yeah it's just nice when the cameras produce those little talking points and quirks that you know yeah. start thinking about yeah yeah, well, that's the thing with camera trapping is you never know what you're going to get. And so, yeah, there's often these sort of little surprises, sometimes a bit like opening presents on Christmas Day yeah. um, when, you, when you look at the back of your camera. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now, I saw an interview with you. Uh, I think it's on your website. And you said photographing a black leopard uh, in its native country is pretty much the ultimate. Well, yeah, but photographing a black leopard, if we've got them in Britain, which, of, of course, if you listen to this podcast, I think a lot of people do think that well, there's a strong case that we do have them. Now, surely um, filming one in your own home country would even top filming Blackie in Kenya. Yeah, I mean, it's something I've thought about. And people have approached me, asked, you know, people who'd, who'd said they'd seen one have approached me. The thing that's always worried me is, you know, if I were to, say, prove there was one, what would the authorities do then? Would they try and capture it? You know, would local people be up in arms about you know, worrying about their pets or their children or something? You know, would it, if it did sort of create that, potentially harm to the animal if people knew it was there? And so I was always wondering, you know, is it actually a lose-lose situation? I either put in a lot of effort and don't achieve anything, or I do achieve something, and then potentially somebody then has to go and capture that that animal that I've proven is there. And so I've always wondered, you know, is it better to leave it alone? Well, we, we wrestle with those issues virtually every episode of this podcast. It's partly what the podcast is for. And yeah, and of course, you get the tactical view that a lot of private landowners know, pretty much know what's going on and talk to people like me about it and do keep it quiet and do keep it below the radar. It must 
excite you and it intrigue you, doesn't it? For, forget the tactical challenge of what you do with it. Um, but of course, I guess you could also keep it vague. I mean, most of the deals that I and other people like me get with landowners when we're invited onto their land to set up trail cameras, uh, the deal is that if we get anything, it must be kept very, very vague and the information, the precise locational information never gets out to anybody. Yeah, and, and if there was that sort of arrangement in place and a very strong lead, I yeah, I, it would certainly be... Uh, yeah, quite an exciting thing to do. Um, yeah, I'm not going to lie there. I mean, I've got a, I've got a lot of projects lined up in Africa, but you know, it would be, it would be a cool thing to do. That's for sure. Do, do you think it would largely be the same kind of process and principles as your Kenyan project that you get, you work on local information and you home in? Maybe you do yeah. use uh, trail cameras to scout, but of course, if you get anything on a trail camera that's half decent in Britain, it would still be pretty, um, pretty useful. Is it pretty much the same principles and process and procedures? Do you think? As I think it would. I mean, it would depend on the sort of quality of information coming my way you know if somebody has been seeing it re fairly regularly that would be you know the best situation knowing where to start but you know if you've just got a broad area i think a lot of camera track a lot of trail cameras you know as many as possible really deployed for as long as possible um you know particularly focusing on areas where it might be coming to drink because in summer for example when there might not be as much groundwater uh, that's what i would do so focus on those those drinking points and just take it from there really but having something on private land would make it much easier not having to worry maybe about people passing and and picking up the cameras yeah that's always an, another consideration of course the uh, irony would be is if you set up expecting a black leopard but you actually got a mountain lion puma cougar or or a lynx you know some of the other ones yeah well that would be certainly interesting yeah well let's hope that can happen somehow we'll um watch this space with you and uh, for sure before we sign off, can we hear about your next sort of key projects, one or two things that we can expect from you next? I was lucky in that I was able to get out to Kenya again in November. So I've actually spent a couple of months post Black Leopard start, starting on my next project. And really, I'm now focusing on lions again. It's something, it's the subject that I'd um, done a lot of earlier in my career and then sort of neglected more recently. And so I feel it was time to revisit lions particularly with a view to doing more at night because you know lions are essentially nocturnal that's when they get up to most of their antics and so i want to really do a long-term project and a big part of that being sort of revealing the nocturnal lives of, of lions for me personally i i like to work on on a book project at a time so the Black Leopard was a project spanned pretty much two years, resulted in a book. Before that, I spent a year uh, photographing these incredible big tusker elephants in Savo in Kenya, which resulted in my book, Land of Giants. And really now I want to spend a couple of years uh, working on a book on lions. And maybe other stuff will feed into that. Maybe a, maybe there might be some sort of documentary that goes on concurrently, but the, I plan everything around getting the photos for this book and then everything else can fit in around that. And just looking at the ones that are in the book, in the middle of the book, on lions, the cameras seem set really very low. And I think that's um, a technique I like. You're, you're meeting them, you know, at eye level, looking into them uh, on their terms. And do you, is that very deliberate that you feel that low camera angle is? For sure. That's all from these camera traps and beetle cam, which enable me to get that low perspective and close up. So I'm using wide angle lens. And so that's you know, what I think brings in the intimacy and, and makes these pictures quite striking. And also it's what allows me when I'm photographing these animals at night to frame them with stars in the sky behind them uh, rather than looking down on them. So, yeah, uh, that's that's why Betacam continues to be such an important part of my work. And in this next Lion project, I think I'm going to be using it a lot uh, to get that uh, that close up ground level perspective. And the African hunting dogs look like they're about to pounce on it in one of the photos because they're looking down on it with suspicion. Yeah, they're very inquisitive. <laughs> yeah, lovely. OK, it's all been terrific stuff. I'm sure listeners have really enjoyed it. Um, well, uh, is there any final point Thank you'd you. like to make or emphasise before we sign off about black leopards or any kind of uh, work we've ranged over? Everyone's probably on the same page in that, you know, these are just such stunning, beautiful creatures, really 
for me, the ultimate subject matter. And certainly if anyone wants to see the pictures that we've been talking about and discussing, you know, on my website, on Instagram, there's plenty up there. So, uh, you know, you don't have to buy the book to be able to see the pictures. There's a lot online as well. Well, Will, it's been lovely to catch up with you and we wish you well with the future work. We'll link some projects under episode 52 on the refs and links part of the website on big cat conversations people can see your book details a link to the little mini um, interview documentary that's on there and the instagram snippet thank you it's been really pleasure to speak to you lovely thanks ever so much will and all the best Okay, before we close, just to mention some coming editions, because we have guests scheduled from Shropshire, and in that one we'll be learning about nighttime surveillance, and we'll also be back in Ireland soon. But next time we're returning to the home counties in the southeast of England, and we have two or three cases from different locations north of London. Some of those will be mentions of recent encounters, and some from a few years back. So, Home Counties, Panthers and Pumas coming up next. We do hope to bring you some pub and cafe podcast discussions in the near future, and that will allow more people to chip in, which will be good. Please get in touch if you'd like to get involved with the show in any way or offer any feedback. The email is rick at bigcatconversations.com. We're signing out now, so thanks again to our guest, Will Burrard-Lucas, and thanks to everyone for listening in. Hope to see you back next time. Take care and bye for now.